So John chapter 11 is where we're at this morning. Uh, We're going to look quickly at just a few verses, um, but I'm trusting that God has something really important for us today. So the book of John is actually broken into two halves, and this morning we're essentially going to finish what the first half of the book. It's, It's broken up into the book of signs where John has been showing us or really putting on display who Jesus is. And the second half of the book that we'll wade into is called the book of glory, and this is where John will display for us why Jesus is actually on earth in the first place to give his life, to rescue, and to ransom the lives of those who are his. And if you remember, the theme verse for the book of John is found actually at the end of this book. It's in John chapter 20, but I just want to remind us once again what this book is all about. In John chapter 20, it says this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. Verse 31, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the sent one, the Son of God, and that, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So if you're wondering, okay, why is John writing this? Why are we preaching through this? Why are we taking this time to actually go through this? That's it. If you're wondering, okay, well, what's the actual agenda here? That's the agenda. That's John's agenda. That's our agenda. That's God's agenda. Is so that you would believe that Jesus is the sent one, the Savior of the world, the very Son of God, and that in believing into him, we've, we've used that language, we've talked about that, that believing into him, uh, that you would have life, that it would be abundant, that it would be over-the-top life in his name. And that's really, uh, when I look at this in the week, when I walk up here on the stage, when I think about this moment, that's really what I ask God for more than anything else for you, that you would believe into Jesus and so that you would keep believing into him so that your heart is captured and captivated by him, by him, not this church, not the idea of of Jesus, not the idea of being a Christian, but by Jesus personally. I'm just crazy enough to think that God wants to have a personal relationship with you that you can know the person of Jesus. And I'm asking God to do that because when your heart is captured and captivated by him, everything else will follow. And you'll know how beautiful and satisfying he is, and I won't have to convince you. And that's really the point of what John is taking us to, that you'd know Jesus, that you would know how deeply and fully loved you are by him, and then you would commit your life to loving others the same kind of love. And John begins to turn a corner here, and he's going to make it abundantly clear that God has sent Jesus to remedy a problem that no human can. And that problem is to forgive sin, to forgive us of our rebellion, and to defeat Satan's sin and death, and to put us back with our Heavenly Father, making us sons and daughters secure for all, all, all eternity. That's what all of these signs are pointing to. And the most prominent sign was the one that we saw last week, where Jesus raises a man named Lazarus from the dead. And so what John's going to do now in this writing, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is record for us in this last section, really two ways uh, that you can uh, respond to who Jesus is. And really, every time we gather around this text, whether we're in a room like this or you're watching online, it's really the same decision that we have to make. Is Jesus who he says he is, or is he not? 
And there really is no middle ground because Jesus says about himself some pretty radical things. And his claims are so significant that you either give your life totally for him or you seek to get him out of your life by any means necessary, even if you have to kill him. And so this book is pushing towards that pinnacle moment. It's pushing towards that crescendo. And John sets that up for us really right out of the gate. So John eleven forty five says this, Therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, so this is talking about the Lazarus miracle, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So right out of the gate, there's kind of two responses to Jesus. And the text tells us what John records for us is is that many believed, which is great. Many believed, but not all. And why not not everyone? This actually makes me feel um, a lot better about what I do. It really kind of takes the pressure off. Because Jesus raises a man from the dead. The guy walks out of the tomb. And people are like, eh, I don't know. I don't buy it. So that really makes me feel good because I'm like, I got no chance because I'm up here like, hey, do you guys know about penguins? You You ever moo at cows? That's like my best stuff. So I got no shot here if not everybody believes when a man walks out of the grave. But it's great because it tells us we can rest in the sovereign plan and power of our God. And and just a little sidecar for some of you, because I know that you have people in your life that that you're burdened for, and you want them to know Jesus. You want them to see him for who he is. You want people in your life to give their life to Jesus. And I have people like that, too. And, And the encouragement to you this morning, just looking at just that one verse, is keep praying for them. Keep loving them. Keep showing and speaking Jesus to them and trust that Jesus will do what only he can do because salvation belongs to our God. And what John tells us in these verses is that some people will testify about Jesus, but some people will tattletale on Jesus. And that's what happens. Look at verse 47. It says this. It says, then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here's this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, this is key in on this, what, this idea here. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. So, so the Sanhedrin, if you're not super familiar, the Sanhedrin uh, is, a, is, a, is the chief priests and it's, and it's the Pharisees who form what's kind of like the Supreme Court of Israel. You've got the Pharisees who go around trying to enforce the law or, or the, the Torah, uh, and then you have these chief priests who are set up as these kind of mediators between man and God, um, but they really serve more as like a kind of socio-political party. 
And these folks, they come together for a ruling council known as the Sanhedrin, kind of like the Supreme Court. And what's interesting is that these men here, they don't disbelieve what Jesus did. Uh, they, they aren't trying to disprove, disprove what Jesus did with Lazarus. They don't deny that a man was actually raised from the, the, the dead. In fact, in verse 47, what's really interesting is they call them signs. It's the same thing that John calls them. They said, look, these are, these are, there are, they are these signs, but, but signs point to something, and these signs point to something, or better said, someone greater than the event itself. And, and even though these religious leaders recognize that they are signs, they refuse to consider what these realities might mean for them. They see the sign. They don't disbelieve the sign. They don't even try to disprove the sign, but, but they, don't, they don't recognize that these signs are actually pointing to Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, the Redeemer that they've been waiting for for centuries. But they don't rejoice or worship. They reject because Jesus is threatening their position and their power, and they have to figure out a way to end him. This is how you know there is a deep-rooted pride at work in the heart of man. When you can see the work of Jesus, you can see the person of Jesus, but yet you still reject him. And the way that you know this is that rather than focusing on what you gain by the person or the work of Jesus, they only focus on what they lose. Look at, look at verse 48 again, because we just have to get this kind of sentiment of what they're saying here. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. That's a threat to them. Why? Because then the Romans will come, take away our temple and our nation. Now understand that these men are like the religious elite of Israel. They studied the scripture more than anyone else. They memorized the entire Torah, the first five books of the Bible, before they finished elementary school. They, they sat under the greatest rabbis, the greatest teachers. They got their PhD in biblical prophecy, and they were some of the most spiritually disciplined people in the entire land. And all of that just shows us that it's possible, it's possible to be super religious and lost from God. That you can know the word of God super well and still not know the God of the word. And so these men that had climbed this ladder in society, they had status, they had position, they had power, they had a place of influence and a place of authority. And in this moment, their greatest Fear in Jesus being who he says he is is realized. They could lose it all. It might cost them everything. The, the key word and concern in verse 48 is the, is the word our. If you've got a Bible, a hard copy that you bring with us, you could just kind of put a little line underneath that and it'll give you, again, the key to the sentiment. They're, they're not afraid of losing their ability to worship they're not afraid of losing their religious freedom per se because their focus is on our place. 
our nation, our position that we've worked so hard to get to, uh, the authority, the influence. If people, if people keep believing that Jesus is king, well, then Rome's going to come down here because Rome doesn't want another king other than Caesar. They will come down here. They will wipe us out. We will lose everything that we work so hard for. That's what they're concerned about here. And look, It's so easy for us to read these verses and to throw stones at Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, but their concern is not new. And it's not a concern that just the super religious people have. It's in all of us. Uh, Let me me illustrate this uh, with actually another story in the scripture, because this is what really grabbed me this week. This is what God was really doing to me this week. Um, We're actually going to see the same kind of fear, the same thought in the very first book of the Bible. You don't have to turn there. We'll put the text on the screen. But if you take notes, just write down Genesis chapter 10, verse 8. Genesis chapter 10. This might be a story you're familiar with. Maybe not, but uh, it's interesting. So Genesis chapter 10 says this. Cush was the father of Nimrod, who became a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That is why it said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. And the first centers of his kingdom were Babylon and Uruk and Akkad and Kelna and Shinar. And that, from that land, he went to Assyria, where he built Nineveh and Reboth, Ur and Kala and Rezin, which is between Nineveh and Kala, which is the great city. So, I know a lot of weird words there, but let's kind of break this down, what's happening here in Genesis chapter 10. In Genesis chapter 10, we meet a guy named Nimrod, kind of an unfortunate name. The first thing that we see about Nimrod is that he's powerful. The scripture says that. The scripture says that he's a mighty one. He's a, he's a champion. He can dominate. He can rule over you. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, the scripture says. So back in that day, they didn't have things like football or UFC, so you can't really show that you're tougher than anybody else. Uh, but one chapter before, um, the people got the green light from God to start killing animals. So hunting is a relatively new endeavor, and this guy was awesome at it. And everybody knew who he was. He's got power, and power makes him famous. Again, in verse 9, chapter 10, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That is why it said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. So he's powerful. He's famous. Um, and before you had Instagram or before you had YouTube, the way that you were famous was that you were proverbial. You became like a, a, a proverb, right? So we do the same kind of thing today. So like you can play basketball like LeBron. You've got bucks like Bezos. You've got moves like Jagger, you know, whatever. It's like that's how you know you're famous. You become proverbial. And, and that's how big of a deal this guy was when you did something great that was like, dude, that was like Nimrod good. You like Nimroded that, right? So he's proverbial. He has power. He has glory. He has fame. They know his name. He's in charge. And because of that, he's a king and he starts to set up his kingdom. And the beginning of his kingdom is Babel. And people follow him. And in Genesis chapter 11, it starts talking about this kingdom. And it starts talking about his rule and the way that he leads. And you get the story of the building of the kingdom of Babel. But it's built in rebellion against God. In fact, the name Nimrod, just in case you were planning on using that anytime soon for one of your kids, means let us rebel. So you get the idea of who this guy is and what he wants to do. And in chapter 4, in verse 11, listen what it says. 
Then they said, come let us build ourselves a city. So remember John eleven forty eight. 48, that word our, here it is in Genesis, the very first book uh, in chapter 11, verse 4, come let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we would make a name for who? For ourselves. Otherwise, if we don't do this, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Let us build a city for us. For us, ours is the kingdom. They want to build a tower because it's a symbol of dominance and and power. And they want this tower to reach to the heavens. They're trying to make a theological statement because heaven is where God is. We want our tower for us to press into the place of where God is. And you see, when, when I don't follow God, when I don't make God the central part of my life, something has to take that place of where God should be. And the most natural thing to take the place of where God should be is myself. And so when you aren't asking, what does God want with my life? Or what does God desire? Or how much can I make with God? You just replace God with you. What do I want? How do I make a big deal out of me? We're going to reach to the heavens. We're going to run this place. We're going to run our own lives. They said, let's make our, for ourselves a name. And why? So that we can be somebody. I want to build a kingdom for my fame, my power. Let's leverage everything that I have for myself so that I can be someone. Let's try to find our significance in our celebrity And it's interesting, at the end of verse 4, it gives you their motivation because it says, otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. You see, verse 4 is so full of arrogance. It's so full of pride. It's so full of what seems like confidence. We're going to build. We're going to build ourselves a city, but really, it's rooted in this fear. Fear that they won't be noticed. They're They're not driven by confidence. They're driven by fear. Brene Brown is a researcher. She's an author. She studies this issue and why it's so pervasive in our culture and that everybody's trying to build their own brand. We just see that in our culture. Uh, That build their own name, build their own kingdom of followers. And most of us are not like classic narcissists, meaning like, just check me out because you should just check me out, right? She says what most of what drives us in this culture of being noticed is fear. Listen to what she says. This is out of her book, Daring Greatly. She said, I see the shame-based fear of being ordinary. I see the fear of never feeling extraordinary enough to be noticed, to be lovable, to belong, to cultivate a sense of purpose. I can see exactly how and why more people are wrestling with how to believe they are enough. I see the cultural messaging everywhere that says an ordinary life is a meaningless life. Kids that grow up on a steady diet of reality TV, celebrity culture, and unsupervised social media can absorb this messaging and develop a completely skewed sense of the world. I'm only as good as the number of likes I get on Facebook and Instagram. It's the same fear in Genesis 11. I'm scared of being a nobody. I'm scared of being scattered. 
And just like in Genesis 11, I think it's true, most of us, we, we, we live there. We're so afraid of being nobodies, and we see the whole world clamoring for attention, and we just get caught up. We just feel like, well, I, I've got to get some too. If I don't get some of that attention, if I don't get that many followers, if I don't get that level of influence, then I'll just be an, an, a nobody. And as we get older, we see that moment fleeting and we get more and more afraid and more and more stressed and more and more irrational in how we feel like we have got to grasp that and attain that. A a few years ago, um, Madonna was interviewed. If you don't know who Madonna is, ask your parents. But this was a few years ago. And Madonna is 62 and she's still like, she's, Madonna's still doing things. She's still a big deal. Um, But listen to what she says. She says, I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting again and again. My drive in life, listen, she's opening the window on who she is here. Listen to this. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've been somebody, I still have to prove I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. The ultimate problem of this life of building your own kingdom for your own fame is that it drives you in the wrong direction. In Genesis chapter 11, it says that the people journeyed east. Now, in the book of Genesis, traveling east is always the the worst. So when Adam and Eve leave the Garden of Eden, they travel east. Cain, after he kills his brother Abel, goes east. When Lot later would break from Abraham to pursue a selfish life, he goes east. And all through the Bible, when people say, I don't want to be a part of the story that God is writing, and they want to go their own way, they always go east. These people start going in a direction that they don't need to go. And for many of us, when we feel the fear of not being noticed, we start doing things that we shouldn't, and we start compromising in places that we shouldn't. We start moving in a direction that we know we shouldn't move. When we feel like we have to promote ourselves more, we have to compromise a moral or a value, we have to elaborate more, we have to embellish our story so that our our brand, our life seems more interesting and more extraordinary, and we're completely absorbed with how we are received by other people. And we're constantly trapped by, well, well, did that person notice me? Am I going to get invited to that table? Am I going to get invited to that meeting? What are, what are they saying about me? How come they don't follow me? How come they do follow me? Uh, and, and we get going in this direction, and, and it's the wrong direction that God intends for us, and it becomes unstable. And so listen what God does in, in Genesis 11. Verse 5, but the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. And the Lord said, if, one, if, if as one people speaking the same language, they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. Verse 8, so the, the, the Lord scattered them from over all the earth and they stopped building the city. That's why it's called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world, and from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Now listen, 
God's not threatened here. He's not afraid. He's not insecure about their building project. What God is saying is, listen, what they're doing is not good for them. It's like as a parent, when I don't hear like the noise from my kids and they're all huddled together and they're quiet in a room, I was like, I got to go break that up. There's something bad happening there. They're scheming for something that's going to be bad for them and for me. So to care for them, i got to go break that up, whatever they're doing there together. This is God's mercy that's putting an end to their self-destructive building project, and God will do that to you as well, and they'll do it to me. Rick Rubin is a music producer, and the thing he's pretty famous for is helping uh, musicians and artists really go deeper. So when they bring a project, he's kind of like this guru who's able to really help these artists kind of tap into something that's deeper in their life and to go a little bit deeper and think about more things in their life. And he was helping Jay-Z in his uh, album Magna Carta, Holy Grail, and and he was trying to get Jay-Z to kind of push deeper into his soul. And and listen to what he said. He said, when I grew up poor, the holy grail for me, the thing I was seeking the most, the pinnacle of life was money because it would get me out of the projects and give me the power to do what I wanted. So I chased money and fame, and this whole album is about how I got everything I wanted, and it's not satisfying to me. He says, I spent, listen to this, I spent my entire life building something, and it's not enough. It's just confusion. You see, God in his mercy will not let you spend your life building something that will lead to confusion. It's the mercy of God in your life. And I want to make something really clear here. Because being influential is not wrong. Abraham met with kings. Being successful is not wrong. Abraham led a nation, had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. It's a church joke. Being famous is not wrong. Abraham is known all over the world. And I'm not speaking out about the, against the internet or social media, but I'm asking you to consider why you want all those things. Because Abraham had all those things, but he didn't build a tower with his life. He built an altar. And if you know the story of Abraham, he puts the most important thing to him on that altar and says, God, it's yours. So work hard, be successful have influence, have position, have platform, be wealthy, just be ready to put it on the altar. Don't use those things to build a tower. Say, God, all this stuff that you've given me, I'm putting it on the altar. Because when you can't do that, that means it's a tower, and it means that God's going to come down and disrupt it. When you're trying to build a kingdom for yourself, it will never satisfy your heart, It will just lead to more and more confusion, and God, in his mercy, will shut the building project down. And when you look at this, you will really see this theme throughout the whole Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, the very first people, the very first temptation, listen, God's trying to keep something from you. Don't be left out. Don't be left out. God's going to keep something from you. Ironically, their sin is what displaces them. 
God pursues them and makes them children and makes them family. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus. Jesus says, leave it all. Come follow me. He goes away dejected and depressed because he just can't do it. He can't leave the tower. Peter, in a moment, we're going to see him later on, but Peter denies Jesus. Why? Out of fear of loss. Maybe it's out of fear of loss of his life, but he's out of fear. He denies Jesus, but his rejecting Jesus actually makes him feel like more of an outsider. After that moment, Peter's like, all right, I guess my life is over. I'll go back to being a fisherman, and he's out there alone. Jesus actually pursues him, brings him back inside, and says, do you love me? Yes, feed my sheep, makes Peter leader of the church. And you see this theme all throughout the scripture. We have this fear of I'm going to be on the outside. I'm going, to be, I'm going to be forgot about. And God's like, no, actually, I am moving heaven and earth to bring you in. That's what I'm all about. Our greatest fear of being forgotten or lost is actually fully realized when we reject or deny Jesus. But our greatest desire and need of being found and known is fully realized when we deny ourselves to follow Jesus. Okay, back to John, and we're just done here. Where we get stuck, where we get stuck is when the lordship of Jesus, Jesus being Lord of all, is at odds with our own lordship over our life. When, when we fear losing everything that we've attained by our own power, and when Jesus is a threat to our glory, our fame, ourselves, we have no choice but to reject Jesus. And, and our fight for what we want is not just out there, it's in here too. Isn't that interesting how things out there in the world uh, where we operate can tend to kind of creep into the church too. This, this fear of control because Jesus messes with our control. We have a way that we want things to be in here. We have certain people that we want in here and certain people we don't. We have certain ideals that we want in here. We have certain opinions that we really want reinforced in here. And what is so great about Jesus is that he graciously and gloriously messes all of that up for us. And it's great because it gives us a chance to love each other better, to be more authentic in our love for one another. But if you only see Jesus as the one who disrupts all the things in your life, if you only see Jesus as a disruption to control and to comfort and to convenience, it's only a matter of time before you're going to want to put him to death. And that's what happens here at the end of the section. Let's read just the last few verses here. Verse 49. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. He says, you know nothing at all. You don't realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people than for the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation and not only for the nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together, to make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. 
When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. And they kept looking for Jesus. And as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. Caiaphas, he knows that the answer to preserving their power and their place in that culture and in that place is that Jesus has to die, not them. In his mind, it's better for an injustice against Jesus than a Roman invasion against them. Caiaphas' prophecy is one of the greatest sentences in the church's doctrine of atonement. Jesus' death as a sacrificial substitution. One commentary uh, put it this way, and I want to put this on the screen because I thought how it was written was really helpful. The best thing that could ever happen to you is this. For this one man to die in the place of the people, instead, in the stead of letting the whole nation be destroyed. The death of Jesus will be literally for, in the stead of, in the place of, insteading himself for the people. Jesus takes humanity's place. That is at the heart of the gospel. So Caiaphas, trying to be clever, actually says it right. Yes, Caiaphas, it's better for one man to die. It was a completely unintentional prophecy of the way that God would in would in fact affect divine human reconciliation. Jesus' death would not only save a nation, but would also gather from all the nations, the scattered children of God everywhere. It would not only be a substitutional covering, but also a magnetic drawing. The cross would work as the blotter and the magnet one Commentary says, to cover, wiping out, to attract, drawing in. John wanted this doctrine of the atonement out in front of these passion chapters where we're going to put Jesus' cross in its properly cosmic perspective. Caiaphas, you got it right. Jesus will die to save many, but for an entirely different purpose and outcome than what you intend. One man will give his life, not for political power, but to satisfy salvation, eternal life for Jews and Gentiles, non-Jews, every tongue, every tribe and ethnic group will be as one. All who would believe that Jesus is Lord, one family together because of the sacrifice of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And God, I thank you for uh, a gracious disruption this morning. God, I thank you for um, the mercy of your intervention. God, for your word, and I'm praying for your spirit to cut right at those of us who have been so busy building our own towers building our own kingdom, building our own name. So many of us, God, myself included, so many times this week um, can, can be like the Sanhedrin and say, listen, I have got to protect my position, my place, my own authority, my own power. And God, I just thank you for how you love us enough to disrupt that. And so, Father, I'm praying 
that in this moment, God, um, that we would submit to your rule and reign. And God, um, in that, know that the only thing we risk if we don't is a life of more confusion. And so, oh God, I thank you for your love this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you for this moment of communion that we're about to enter into where we are reminded in what we just ended with that one man, the perfect man, the God man gave his life as a ransom and a rescue for his enemies so that we might be called sons and daughters. Jesus, we love you. We pray these things in your name.